All right, so hopefully you are at John chapter 16. We're just going to begin by reading the passage together, and then we will unpack it. We're going to start in verse 4 today. John chapter 16, verse 4. This is Jesus speaking. He said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I, did, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And we're going to stop there. So if, if, if you're like me, hearing that passage... Uh, the, the first thing that's going to pop out to you is when Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. It, it's, for, it's for your benefit that I'm leaving. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, especially in light of all the things that Jesus has been telling his disciples in this upper room. If you've been with us for a while now, the, the last few chapters that we've been looking at is Jesus talking with his disciples in the upper room. This is his, the night before he goes to the cross, and so he gives them these commands and these promises, and these, um, he, he's, he's saying all of these things to his disciples, and it, they're, they're weighty things. They're, they're things with a tremendous amount of gravity. Jesus says, you know, go and love one another you know, in the same way that I've loved you. Go and obey all of my commands. Go and bear fruit uh, in me. Go and bear fruit. Turn this world upside down. Oh, and by the way, when you do that, the world's not going to like it. They're going to be confused. In fact, they're going to be offended that you're doing that, and they're going to push back. They're going to reject you. They're going to persecute you. In fact, some of them are even going to try to kill you. Go, go and bear fruit. Be on this mission. And by the way, you know, as, we, as you embark on that mission, day one, your captain's going to be killed. But it's for your, it's for your benefit. It's to your advantage. It's what's best. Can you imagine being the disciples? Put, put, put yourself in the disciples' shoes in that moment. Jesus tells you, do all of these great things. Go on this mission. And by the way, I'm not coming, and it's for your benefit. I mean, I, I think you, you want us to do all of those things without you. Us, poor, illiterate fishermen and tax collectors who have zero clout in our society, living in a country that has zero you know, power on the world stage, Okay? We're nobodies you know, with no reputation, no, no you know, position in a, in a nobody country. You want us to go doing these amazing things, and it's best if you're not there. And Jesus says, yes, because if I go to the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit. And in fact, you know, history tells us Jesus was right. The fact of history says that Jesus was right. Because if you look at the apostles before Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles, if you look at the apostles before Pentecost and the apostles after Pentecost, it's like a completely different set of guys, is it not? They're like a completely different set of men. And it, history shows us they did turn the world upside down. We're sitting in this very room, you know, 2,000 years later across the other side of the world because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, because he left and he sent the Spirit. So what does this say to us today? What does this mean for us today? Well, I'll, I can only tell you my own personal conviction. Here's my personal conviction in light of that. I have no excuse for the level at which I'm living. 
I have, I have no excuse for the level at which I'm living. Um, because if you're like me, and sometimes you kind of stumble and stutter through your Christian life, oftentimes my go-to response is, well, you know what, God, if you just gave me some more information, if you gave me some more experiences, like if I could just see some miracles happen, if I could just see you provide in these you know, incredible ways, if you could just beat this sin in the way that I want you to beat this sin, if you could just do all of these things, if I had a vision of you, I'd be good. Right? If I just had some firsthand eyewitness testimony of you right now, then I'd be, it would make all the difference in the world in my Christian walk. You know, Jesus gives all of these tremendous commands in this upper room to the, to the apostles, and we see the apostles go and they you know, change the world. But I think of that, I think, well, you guys, had the, you guys were with him for three years. You guys got to watch the miracles. You guys got to listen to the teaching firsthand. You got to see all of these amazing things. You walked with him. You traveled with him. You, you, you slept right next to him. Of course, you have some more power and motivation to obey him. You got to see it all firsthand. You know, I've thought plenty of times, well, if, you know, Jesus, if I just would have seen you feed the 5,000, there'd be no doubt in my mind anymore that you could provide for me. If I could just have just seen you feed the 5,000. You know, Jesus, if I could have just, you know, uh, seen you still the storm with, with a word, that I would have no more question anymore that you have authority over my circumstances, you, that you are sovereign over my circumstances. Jesus, if I, if I would have just seen you call Lazarus out of that tomb, then I would have no doubt in my mind anymore that you do, in fact, have authority over death. You know, Jesus, if, if I would have just heard with my own two ears, you know, the, the, the insight and the authority as you taught, you know, God's word, if you taught the scriptures to people, then I would have no problem obeying you anymore. Right? If I could have just sat across from Jesus firsthand, heard him say, looking me in the eyes, seeing his lips moving, Philip, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Well, of course, I would just know that God's grace is sufficient for a man like me. If I just had the firsthand eyewitness that these apostles had, everything would be different. Of course, I'd be walking through this life with, with a greater sense of peace and integrity and purpose and, and power as a Christian. But here's what occurred to me this week. Here's what occurred as I was studying this. History shows us that it was not seeing the miracles and hearing the teaching and learning the doctrine straight from Jesus' lips that changed the hearts of the apostles. It was not the firsthand eyewitness that changed the heart of the apostles. It was the Holy Spirit of God. After... After Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, if you're in our Bible reading plan with Twin Oaks, you you read through that last week. So if you read through that, you'll notice that after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of all time, right, completely, it changed everything. That after he preached the Sermon on the Mount, were the disciples just lit up, were their, their, you know, faces glowing and then just ready to go and take the message to the streets? No, they weren't, were they? When when Jesus fed the 5,000, uh, did, did the apostles, were they confident? Well, like, man, I'll never question again whether or not Jesus could provide for us. No. In fact, just shortly thereafter, Jesus feeds another group of people, 4,000. And then just after that, the disciples are like, man, when are we going to eat? And oh, no, we're stressing out. What are we going to eat? And Jesus says, are you kidding me? <laughs> we just fed 5,000. You served them. I just fed 4,000. That's in Matthew. We just read through that in our Bible reading plan, didn't we? And... and and he says, you, you still don't trust me that I can, can provide for you? It wasn't seeing the miracles that changed the hearts of the apostles. It, it wasn't even when they see Jesus alive from the dead, resurrected Jesus alive from the dead. Were their hearts transformed? I don't think so yet. You know, Jesus, you know, that, that's why I, I, when all is said and done, they, they end up in Jerusalem in a locked room. 
They've like, they're not out hitting the streets with the message that Jesus is alive. Sure, Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait for me. He, they didn't say, go up in an upper room and lock yourself in. They could have gone and hit the streets, but they didn't. What was it that gave them the power and the peace and the fruitful Christian life? It was Pentecost. It was the Holy Spirit of God that came down and transformed the disciples. This means that if the Spirit of God, that same Holy Spirit of God that lived in them and that transformed them lives within me, which is what Romans 8 says, if you belong to Christ, you'll have the Spirit of Christ living in you. That if that's what Romans 8 says, that then I have the same Spirit of God that lives in me, then I have everything that I need to live the same dynamic, fruitful Christian life that the apostles had. There's no excuse for me to live a fruitless Christian life because it was not the firsthand experiences that gave the apostles the ability to live the Christian life. It was the Holy Spirit of God. And yes, don't get me wrong, as if the miracles and the teachings and stuff were not important, but they were tools used by the Spirit of God. Ultimately, it was the Spirit of God who was supernaturally transforming the disciples. So that's my personal conviction. I have no excuse to live uh, at the level at which I am living. The same Spirit of God that lives in the apostles now lives in me. I walk forward with the same power uh, and the same peace and the same, should, should walk forward with the same power and the same peace uh, and, and the same uh, um, security that the apostles walked in. So what is it that the Spirit does that radically transforms our hearts and mind according to this passage? According to Jesus in verse 8, the Spirit will come and he will convict the world of sin righteousness, and judgment. Okay, Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want to look at each of those uh, areas in just a minute here, but before I do that, let me just point out a couple of really interesting words that Jesus uses in this passage. In verse 7, Jesus says that he is sending a helper. He is sending a helper. The word that, that Jesus uses for helper, is it's, it's the Greek word paraclete. We've talked about that here before. Um, if you have some different translations, uh, you know, ESV says helper, uh, you might have a different, uh, different word that there that's used. The, the, the thing is, paraclete can't just be translated into one word in English because the meaning, the Greek word is, uh, the, uh, the, the meaning of that Greek word is just far too broad. But what's implied is an advocate. An advocate. We, we translate as helper, but it's, it's an advocate. The Holy Spirit has come to be our advocate. The idea is that of a defense attorney. Okay? The Holy Spirit comes as our defense attorney. He comes to stand beside us, to help us, to defend us, to support us. Uh, Joe mentioned this last time that he preached a couple months ago. He, he talked about what a great thing this is that we have the Holy Spirit as our advocate. Because if you are on trial, you basically place your life, you place your future in the hands of your defense attorney, don't you? Right? If you have a, if you have a weak case, but you have a great advocate, a great defense attorney... You might be all right. You're probably going to be all right. But if you, have a, if you have a great case, really strong case, but a terrible attorney, you might be in some trouble, right? You might be in some trouble. Basically, you are only as strong as your advocate, as your defense attorney. If he's strong, then you're strong. But if he's weak, then you are weak. And Jesus says, I'm sending you an advocate. An advocate. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, God himself is our advocate. And that is great news. Is it not? Okay, so how is he going to work for us? According to Jesus in verse 8, this is really interesting. He says he will be our advocate by convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. By convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The word convict, that we translate convict in the Greek is alegco. And it means 
to prosecute. It means to prosecute. It literally means to cross-examine somebody with the intention of showing them where, their error. It, to cross-examine them with the intention of showing them their error. So look how Jesus is being purposely you know, paradoxical. He's basically saying, uh, your advocate, your defense attorney, has come to prosecute you. See what he does? Your advocate, your defense attorney, has come to prosecute you, to, to cross-examine you, to show you your error. But how can that be? doesn't make any sense. But of course it does. Of course it makes sense because we do it all the time, don't we? Just this last week, I sat down with a buddy of mine um, who was on the cusp of doing some really unhealthy, ungodly things. And he shared them with me. And we sat and we talked through it for a while. Um, And because I love him, uh, I got pretty rough with him. And I argued with him. And I prosecuted him. I, I, I cross-examined him. I asked him really tough questions to try to help him to see the holes in his thinking, to understand that just the darkness of the path that he was beginning to walk down. But why did I do that? I didn't do it so I could crush him. I did it because I love him. I didn't argue with him. I didn't get rough with him because I wanted to see him in prison. I did it so that he could be free. And this is what the Spirit does. He is our advocate, and he comes and he convicts us. He prosecutes us, not to crush us, but to set us free. Because, as the scriptures say, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and thereby sets us free. So I want to look at each of those briefly. First, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Why does that always have to come first? Why does, this, why does the Holy Spirit always have to make us feel bad before he can make us feel good? Um, well, again, that makes sense. It makes total sense. Um, Keller, the way he says it, he says, try to get somebody to go to a doctor who doesn't think they, you know, that, that they need to go. What do you got to do? Try to get somebody to go to the doctor who doesn't think that, that he or she needs to go. What do you have to do? You, you have to argue with them. Right? You have to, you have to, prosecute. You have to con- convict them of their sickness. You have to convince them of their need. You have to say, look at your symptoms. Look at how sick you are. You know, look, look at the thermometer. You're burning up. Look at WebMD. Look at all these symptoms. Look at what that could possibly be. You have to convince them of their need. That's how you get somebody to go to the doctor who doesn't want to go. You have to tell them of their need. For example, I had... Uh, Kidney stones last spring. Um, I hate going to the doctor. I just I hate it. I especially hate going to the ER because I hate the bill that comes like a month later. It's terrible, right? So I hate going to the doctor. Um, but last spring I had kidney stones. I'd never had kidney stones, so I didn't know what they felt like and I wasn't thinking about kidney stones. But one morning I wake up and I've got this blinding pain in my like, stomach and back, right? And I uh, don't know what's happening, but um, like I said, I, I hate going to the doctor um, but Jessica, my wife, because she loves me, acting as my advocate, convinced me of my need. She, she basically said, Philip, um, look at yourself. <laughs> You're laying on the ground in a fetal position, okay? Which is true. You're laying on the ground all curled up. You need to go to the doctor. And so we went to the doctor. And now I'm kicking myself because I got the bill, right? And it turned out to be kidney stones. All I knew at that time was I was basically just begging for death, um, just take me now. Um, but, but Jessica, because she loved me, as my advocate, because she cared for me, she convinced me of my sickness, that I might go see the doctor. And that's what the Spirit does. 
The Spirit enables us to see the truth of the Scriptures that tell us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that includes every person in this room. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that God lives in unapproachable light. He cannot dwell with darkness. Therefore, our sins separate us from a holy God. There is none who does good. That's what the scriptures say. None who does good. No one who seeks after God. Therefore, without supernatural intervention, we are destined for an eternal separation from God. That's the very definition of hell. The Spirit shows us we are desperately sick and in need of a doctor. We are desperately in need of forgiveness from our sins if we want to be reconciled back to God. The first step that the Holy Spirit takes in setting us free is showing us that we are, in fact, sinners. Um, If you're a Christian in here today, and I know know many of you are, there came a point in your life when you came face-to-face with the reality um, that that you are at odds with God and at odds with others, and even at odds with yourself, not merely because you were a product of, of your circumstances. Not merely, you are not simply at odds with God and at odds with others and at odds with yourself because of the sins of somebody else, but because of the sin in your own heart. You're not, you're not simply, you're, you're not struggling in life, you're not falling apart just because your, your daddy didn't hug you enough as a kid, or because this church did this to you, or because this person sinned you. All of those things may, may very well be real, but ultimately, what it comes down to, it's got to start right here. It's not because of the sins of somebody else. It's because of the sins of your own heart. If you're a Christian, there's been a point in your life when you've come face-to-face with that reality. Has that happened to you? I mentioned to you all once before about an article uh, that came out in the Times uh, many, many years ago. Uh, and the, the, magazine, the magazine sent out uh, inquiries to a whole bunch of famous authors and thinkers and intellectuals uh, and they all and they asked the question, what's wrong with the world? Remember we talked about what, what's wrong with the world? You know, this is after the world wars, and it was, you know, look at the genocides out there. Look at the many families without fathers. Look at the, the crime rates. Look at the, uh, just look at the issues in our world. What is wrong with the world? That's what the Times asked. And so, you know, is it, is it lack of education? Is it that we're not using our resources well? Is it, is it the structures of our government? Is it, is it the loss of family values? What is it? And so they sent out these inquiries to all of these, these great thinkers, and they said, what's wrong with the world? And very famously, G.K. Chesterton, a, a Christian journalist, wrote back and answered the question in two words. I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I am. You see, G.K. Chesterton realized there are lots of problems out there, but the problem doesn't start out there. The problem starts right here. Chesterton knew what the Spirit was convicting him. Chesterton knew that he was a sinner. John Stott once said, nobody can say hallelujah, which means praise God. No one can say hallelujah without first saying, woe is me, I am a sinner. No one can say hallelujah without first saying, woe is me, for I am a sinner. The second thing that uh, the Spirit convicts us of is righteousness. Okay, So in other words, the, the first thing that the Spirit does is he shows us our need. The second thing the Spirit does is he shows us what Jesus has done to meet that need. Um. Jesus says in verse 10 that the Spirit convicts us concerning righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father. We're not going to see him anymore because he's, he's leaving. Jesus is going to the Father. How was he going to leave? The cross. Through, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has made a way for us to have a righteousness, a right standing with God that is not our own. Paul says it in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed and is received by 
faith. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness, he shows us that all of our own efforts at righteousness, all of our own, all of our own efforts at making ourselves good enough and, and whole and clean have not, will not, cannot be sufficient. And this is really, really important for us to, to grasp, really important for us to understand, because a lot of folks think that Christianity is all about developing, building up this righteousness that one day we will present to God at the end of all time. We will present to God in hopes to be acceptable to him. But that's not Christianity at all. What the Bible teaches, in fact, is that it's not about us developing a righteousness and giving it to God. It's about God developing a righteousness and gifting it to us. That's what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about clawing our way, climbing our way up to heaven. Christianity says that God, in his mercy and his grace, has come down to us. We cannot work for God to be accepted. God has done a work for us. Amen? This is the best news in all of the world. Best news. Because, what, what, again, what, what the scriptures say and what history shows us and even personal experience, it, we, we know that it is not possible to clean ourselves up. We are not possible to take off our sin and then put on righteousness to have a right standing with God. It's like Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like Eustace. Remember, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's this, this snot-nosed kid who is selfish, who is greedy, who is, is so, so much like a, a dragon that he turns into a dragon. Okay, one day he actually turns into a dragon. He's so dragonish. He turns into a dragon, and, and Eustace, in, in that, sees not just what he's become on the outside, but ultimately what was on the inside, and he's brokenhearted. He sees what he has become, and he has brokenhearted. And so one day, Aslan, the, the lion, the Christ-like figure in, in uh, uh, Narnia, uh, takes this, this Eustace the dragon to a lake, and, and Aslan tells uh, Eustace, he says, he says, take off your clothes, jump in, and, and take a bath. And so Eustace realizes, okay, what he means is he wants me to take off my dragon skin, take off my dragon scales, and jump in and take a bath. Uh, and so Eustace tries to do that. And so he takes his little claw, and he, you know, peels back, you know, that, peels back his skin, and he's about to go jump into the lake. And then just as he does, he looks down, and he sees his reflection in the water, and he says, oh, I'm still a dragon. And so he goes again, and he realizes he just took off the outer layer of skin. So he's like, i got to take off the next layer of scales. And so he takes off the next one, but he's still a dragon. He looks in the reflection, he's still a dragon. And so again and again and again and again, he tries taking off this outer layer. And finally, Aslan, who's watching him, basically says to Eustace, Eustace, if you want to be rid of your dragon scales, you're going to have to let me do it because I need to go much, much deeper. I need to go much deeper. And so Eustace says, okay. And here, Eustace told the story later, and he said this. He said, you know, I was afraid of his claws. I was afraid of his claws, but I can tell you I was desperate by now. The very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But he pulled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was, lying on the grass, thick and dark and knobbly looking. And then he caught a hold of me, and he threw me into the water. Talked about how refreshing it was in the water. He said, he took me and he threw me into the water. And then, I, and then I saw I had turned into a boy again. Our righteousness, our right standing with God, cannot come by us peeling away the outer layers of our dragon skin. God must step in with his claws, pierce us, rip it off, and make us new creatures. And that's what the cross is all about. 
On the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself. It, it was crucified with him. He bore the penalty for our sin. He took that sin, and then in its place, he gives us his right standing with God, his righteousness. Scriptures say, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you remember, if anybody read The Pilgrim's Progress, talked about it a couple times here before. It's a great, great allegory to the Christian life. Um, The the story of Pilgrim's Progress, there was a man who lives in a place called the City of Destruction. And uh, one day this man called Pilgrim, he he was out in the the, uh, field and he he started reading this book. And the book detailed the glory of God and the holiness of God, but also the the sinfulness of man and our separation from him and the coming judgment that was to come in in light of our sin. And so this this man is is reading this book as he's just pacing through this field, and he's, he's getting more and more desperate as he realizes the plight that he is in, that he lives in the city of destruction, that judgment is to come. And as he's reading this, he's realizing that there's this great big burden on his back. There's this great big burden on his shoulders. It's It's the burden of sin. And he doesn't, he's in despair. He's like, I, I don't know how to get rid of this great big burden on my back. I don't know how to escape the coming judgment. And he's in despair. Well, on walk, you know, up walks this, this uh, guy named Evangelist. And Evangelist comes and asks him what's wrong. And, you know, the, he, the pilgrim tells him. And, and Evangelist says, well, if you want to get rid of that great big burden of sin on your back and you want to, you know, find deliverance from the coming judgment, go over there to that wicked gate. That wicked gate. Not wicked. Wicked. Okay, gate. Go over there to that gate, you know, over there, over yonder, whatever. Um, and so the man says, okay, and so he, he, he goes off and he starts heading towards that gate. Well, if you've read the book, you might remember that he uh, meets somebody on the way. On the way, he meets a, a man named uh, Worldly Wise Man. Worldly Wise Man. And Worldly Wise Man asks, you know, hey, you know, what, what's your journey all about? Where are you going? What, what, what are you up to? And the man tells him, the pilgrim tells him, and Worldly Wise Man basically says, oh, no, 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 that's not the right way. Don't go over there to the gate. You know, that, that's, that's all the way over there. Come right up here. You know, just head right on up, to, up this hill to the city of morality. Head up to the city of morality, and I'll introduce you to a man named Mr. Legality, legalism. I'll introduce you to this guy. He can take that burden off your back, no problem. Okay, yeah, he, he's done it plenty of times. He, he can take that, that burden right off your back. In other words, if you're not tracking with the allegory, he's saying, you know, you have sin in your life. Just live a good, moral, decent life, and then all of that sin will disappear. Your, your conscience will be cleansed. Okay? And this sounds right to the guy, and so he starts trekking up to the city of morality. But as he starts going up this hill, he realizes that the hill is much, much steeper than it looked. It's much steeper than he thought it was going to, um, going to be. And so as he's heading up there, not only is it much steeper, but he realizes that the burden on his back is actually getting bigger and heavier than it had ever been before. And he falls down in despair because he realizes that as he's trekking up, uh, up this this. Uh, this hill towards the city of morality, it's gotten so steep, in fact, that he feels as if the hill is actually going to come crashing down on top of him. That's the picture you get. And so he just falls down in despair. And John Bunyan, who is the guy who wrote the story, um, says in his biography that he was illustrating uh, his own life at this point in the story. He was illustrating his own life. Because early in his life, John Bunyan heard a sermon that really convicted him of his sin. And so, you know, he, he, he saw his desperate need, and so he, he thought, well, um, I'll, I'll try to live the best life that I possibly can. I'm going to try the, the way of morality. And so he tried to live a, a better life. He tried to obey God in every way in hopes that it would cleanse his conscience of his sin. But the harder that he tried, he said, the more apparent it was that he was failing miserably. He actually said, he said, I, 
He said, I don't know of any man in England that tried harder to please God than me. And yet, as he kept working and as he kept trying harder and harder and harder, he realized that his burden, the burden on his back, was just getting bigger and heavier as he realized how he was failing. I read this week about how John Bunyan used to like to listen to the bells that were ringing in the steeple at a church about a mile away from his house. And so he would go and he'd actually lean up against the steeple while they ring the bells. He just, he just thought it was sweet. He, got so, he, he became so burdened and so guilt-ridden because of his sin in his life um, that he, he stopped going there because he thought, if I go and sit under those bells, I'm afraid that they're going to fall off and hit me on the head and kill me. So as hard as he was trying, he had no peace in his life. No, no peace at all with God. He thought, God's going to try to kill me after sin in my life. That's how little of peace he had in his life. Eventually, Bunyan came to realize, thank God, that it was only through Jesus that he could have peace. It wasn't through his efforts. It was only going to be through the cross of Christ. And that's why Bunyan wrote the next section of the story the way that he did. In the story I told you, the pilgrim goes up this hill towards the city of morality, and he falls down in despair, just realizing that there's no way that he can make it, and the burden is just getting greater. And, uh, and as he's just sitting there in despair, up walks again evangelist. And he says, what are you doing, man? I told you, go to the gate. That's the only way. If you want that burden off of your back, if you want deliverance from the coming judgment, you've got to go to the gate. And so, you know, up the man goes, and he goes off to the gate. And, and uh, rather than telling you what happens, I'm going to read it to you, what happens next. Okay, so he walks through this narrow gate, and it says, Bunyan writes, he says, the highway up which the man was to go, this is through the gate now, the highway up which the man was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and the wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did the burdened man run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran until he came to a hill, and upon that hill stood a cross, and at the bottom of the hill a grave. And I saw in my dream that just as he came up to the cross, his burden was loosened from off of his soldiers, so, so, shoulders, and it fell from off of his back and began to tumble until it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in, and I saw it no more. And then he was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He has given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. And then he stood still for a while, and he looked and he wondered. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of a cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even until the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. And as he stood looking and weeping, he sang, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could I ease the grief that I was in. Until I came here, what a place is this? This must be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed grave, blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. The Spirit convicts us of our sin, and the Spirit convicts us then of our righteousness. In other words, he shows us our great need, and then he shows us what Jesus has done to meet that need. And then finally, the Holy Spirit shows us judgment. In verse 11, Jesus says, he convicts us concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is judged. Here's what I think that means. In light of what Jesus has done, in light of his life, death, and resurrection, the ruler of this world, Satan, is done. He's defeated. The, the weapon of Satan, friends, is, is condemnation. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For God sent his only son 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit reminds us, because of what Jesus has done, Satan has no more sway over us. He has nothing left to accuse us of. He's been disarmed. Again, we're free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He has no power over us anymore. You remember that, remember that parable that Jesus gave where he said, if you want to go in and rob a strong guy, uh, you, what, what do you got to do first? If you want to go into a strong man's house and you want to rob him, what's the first thing you got to do? You got to go in, overpower the strong man, tie him up, disarm him, tie him up, and then you can go in and take whatever you want. I love that that was Jesus' parable, by the way. Jesus strides in, overcomes Satan, disarms him, ties him up, and then just starts claiming what it belongs to him. You belong to me now. You belong to me. Just comes and plunders Satan's stuff. Us. There's, there's a story that illustrates us so well in, in Zechariah chapter 3. In fact, I, it, I, I love, this one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, and you know it because I've, I mention it every two to three months, basically. Um, it illustrates it so well. Uh, the prophet Zechariah gets a, a picture, um, gets a vision of, of the high priest, this guy named Joshua, Joshua the high priest, uh, and he's standing in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of a holy God. And if you remember, the high priest in that day was tasked to, once a year, they go into the Holy of Holies, the very inner temple, of, or the very inner uh, place of the temple, where, where it was said that the, the unique presence of the, of the holy God resided. So the, the, holy of holy, the, the, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement, not only for their sin, but for the sin of the nation. Okay? And so... Uh, you know, you, you wouldn't go in there flippantly. You would go in there. You wanted to make sure that you were righteous when you went in before a holy God. And so what would happen is days beforehand, the high priest would go out, you know, and isolate themselves, and they'd confess their sin before God, and they'd pray, and they'd fast. They'd do everything that they possibly could to cleanse themselves, to, to make themselves righteous on the inside. And then the day that they would go in, they would bathe themselves, and actually there'd be a whole crowd of Israelites watching them because, you know, this guy's going in representing them. They were relying on this high priest. And so they would watch him bathe, clean himself up. They would watch him get dressed, make sure that, what the, you know, the white garments that he put on would be spotless, completely blemish-free, okay? And then the, the high priest would go in. Uh, and so Zechariah sees a vision of the high priest Joshua standing in the presence of the holy God. And Zechariah would have been absolutely appalled because what Zechariah sees is instead of Joshua standing there in these impeccably white garments. He's standing there from head to toe covered in filth and excrement. Feces. And what I think is happening is Zechariah is seeing what God sees, how God sees humans even in our best attempt at being righteous. We clean ourselves up on the inside. We clean ourselves up on the outside. But our sin, this is the way we look before a holy God. And it gets even scarier because Joshua's not alone. In the vision, Satan is standing right next to Joshua, the high priest. And he's pointing his finger at Joshua. And he's looking at God saying, condemn him. Kill him. Look at his sin. Look at his sin in the presence of a holy God. He's condemning Joshua in his sin. And Joshua stands there with his head hung low because the fact is, Satan's right. You know, God has every right in his holiness to consume him in his wrath because of the sin in his life. But what does God say? God, God looks down on, on Joshua and says, I have put his sin away. Take off, take off those filthy garments and clothe him in robes of righteousness. 
I have put his sin away. Take off those filthy garments and put on robes of righteousness. How could he do that? Is God just sweeping, you know, Joshua's sin under the rug? Forgetting that it ever happened? No. God is just. He doesn't do that. That means crimes would, be, would go unpunished. No, the way that he was able to do it is at the end of that very same chapter where, where, where Zechariah has that vision, uh, basically God says, because I'm sending my servant, the branch, the Christ, Jesus, I'm sending my servant, and he will remove the sin from throughout this land in a single day. What was that day? That's the cross of Calvary, when Jesus took the penalty for our sins. He, he took on those, those filthy robes. He, wore, he bore the burden of God's wrath, and he gives us his robes of righteousness. So, friends, I just got to ask, as we close, are, are, you, are you living with a sense of condemnation? With a sense each and every day of guilt and shame over your sin. Are you feeling condemned? Because the reality is, according to the scriptures, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, in the moments that you hear Satan accusing you and condemning you of your sin, what can we do? We point to the cross. You have nothing left to accuse me of. It's been taken care of. You've got nothing on me anymore. Satan has been disarmed. And, and the glorious reality that we can now live with each and every day, that, that sets us free, again, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The glorious reality that we now get to live in is there is nothing, if we are in Christ, there is nothing that we can do to make our relationship with God any more secure than it already is right now. And there is nothing that we can do to make our relationship with God less secure than it is right now. If we could walk in that each and every day, there is nothing more, more gloriously liberating than that truth. And so I just want to ask one question. Are you walking in freedom? Are you experiencing that freedom today? Are you living your life each day in light of what the Spirit shows us with sin and with righteousness and with judgment that the ruler of this world has been judged by what Christ has done? Is that real to you? Or is it just something we talk about on Sunday mornings, something that we sing about on Sunday mornings? Because at the, right at the end of this passage, it says that the Holy Spirit has come to bring glory to Jesus. Glory to Jesus. Uh, the word glory, we know, means weight or, or substance or significance. In other words, the Spirit has come to take what Jesus has done and move it from just being something that you know about to something that you actually know. The Holy Spirit has come to move the message of the gospel from just being an abstract concept that we like to talk about on Sundays, an abstract concept that we like to sing about on Sundays, to something real, something substantial that changes every facet of your life. That's what it means when the Holy Spirit comes to bring glory to Jesus in your heart and mind. If you're not walking in the freedom and the peace and the joy of that this morning, my hope is that each one of us would just take some time as, as we, we're going to sing a couple more songs. Alyssa and Jonathan, you guys can come on up. If you're not walking in that freedom and that peace and that joy and that security this morning, my hope is that as we sing, you would take some time and you'd ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind, open your heart to the reality, to the weight, to the glory of what Jesus has done. Amen? Let's pray.